What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, it's been a while since we talked about our old mate Jason Furman. Uh, has he paid his bills? He has paid his bills. Oh, okay. So we should record him a new ad. Surely he has a website now? Uh, no, he does not. Oh, uh, maybe he's provided a direct phone number people can order through? Uh, I'll just check. No, no phone number either. I like the way that you're actually pretending to look whether he has provided <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to get in contact with Jason, you still have to do that through Facebook. It's uh, Einswick Dog Quip, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K. Jason can hook you up with all the things you might be interested in getting, the Firepaw Mills, which a lot of people are getting and loving. Mm. He has Herm Springer products, if you're into those. Yep. He has balls, leashes, tugs. Yep. And at the moment, he has a 10% discount on all Canine USA products. That's pretty cool. And I believe he's got a lot of the other stuff that you can use to compete in GRC as well, such as the sleds and the mm -hmm. spring poles. Yeah, that's correct. He yeah. sure does. Well, that's so great. That's a sport that, taking the world by storm. Yeah. So if you're into that or you just like training your dog, having a good time, have a chat to Jason on Facebook at Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Send him an inventory via Messenger and get your gear. <laughs> <laughs> get a website, Jason, you bozo. Yeah. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in our fancy, fancy new studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Are you going to call it a studio? Well, we do have a brand new board. We've got a brand new board, thanks to our Patreon supporters. Hopefully, we both sound better. Yeah, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, I've got to admit, because this is the first time we've set it up, so I want to hear what it sounds like mm -hmm. after production. So did you? I, did I see correctly that you put a fat bottom on me? I did put a fat bottom on you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a real thing. Glenn has made my voice more fat at the bottom. Yes. Um, well, it's part of the settings. It's called a. I think it's what's it called? An Apex Exciter or something like that. And part of that is a a big bottom. I think it is a big what? bottom. A big bottom. Okay. So it's supposed to give your voice a bit more oomph at the bottom. Okay. We need that. Not a fat bottom. A big bottom. So this is pretty exciting for you. It is very exciting. You know, I'm a bit of a tech head. So mm -hmm. I just took um, a photo of you setting all that up. I'm going to put that on the on the Facebook. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, it was something that we I've looked at this for ages. Like I've been watching all the reviews, and it's called a a Rodecaster Pro, and it was something developed by Rode, who does a lot of the microphones, mm -hmm. and they developed this as a standalone unit that podcasters can use. So if anyone is doing a show and you haven't got one of these units. One of the early bugbears that people did have was that it didn't support multi-channel, but they've done a firmware update on it, and it now supports multi-channel. And what that means to all the people going, what the hell does that mean? It means that instead of recording through one channel, you can do multiple channels. So if somebody coughs while you're doing an interview, rather than affecting the whole show on the one channel that you're recording on, you can now edit that cough out and still not impact the rest of the people talking on the show. Ah, uh, may. 
Zing. Absolutely. Yep, I've lost sleep over it. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's like a giddy school kid unwrapping a Christmas present. All right. Hey, what are we talking about? We're talking about classes today, I think. Yeah. I so think uh, Greg, Kerr. Kerr, Kariban. Yep. He was talking about how do we structure classes? How do we have more fun in classes? How do we... Thoughts on group classes. Thoughts on group classes. So that's going to be our head title is thoughts on group classes. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I've done predominantly throughout my career. Mm-hmm. I did this from the very, very early days in Australian dog training, primarily when I started working with Boyd and really learnt my apprenticeship, even pre-NDTF days as the NDTF was in conception. And that was one of the reasons why the National Dog Trainers Federation was developed, was to try and uniform how people would instruct dogs. Mm -hmm. It was an individual course or a course structured on individualism in training to try and make better trainers, but also to give them an idea of of how to conduct group classes. And it's something to this day that we still do. Mm. So part of the elective in what we teach in is uh, group class setup and structure. So it gives people an idea on work health and safety, gives them an idea on how to structure the class properly and considerations for fellow students, duty of care, of course, preventing incidents from happening, even little things for like, let's start at the beginning since we're talking about it. So it starts teaching students the concept of how to care for your students in your class more, Mm -hmm. how to prevent issues from occurring. So even at the gathering, when people come through the gate and they assemble in some sort of unruly fashion, how to turn chaos into control as quickly as you possibly can. Because what happens is a lot of people end up turning up to the training centre and this is probably the worst time because people don't know what they're doing. So they go over and they start being social with other people and letting their dogs get in contact of other people. So I think the first thing that you've primarily got to do when you're trying to set up a class instruction establishment is give people quite a healthy preamble of what to do when they get to the training center. Mm -hmm. And that can be done in a variation of different manners. That could be a printed publication like a newsletter or snail mail if you still want to send that sort of stuff out. However, these days with social media, what I usually encourage people to do is create a video. A video is more in capturing of how to get through to people because, I mean, who reads these days? Mm. I mean, we're living in the days of visual interaction where people are doing videos on just about everything. And even books these days are audio books because people are giving up the idea of reading. I think reading is still a, a healthy attribute that people should... I encourage people to do it. We encourage people to do it. I mean, we've got our Canine book Paradigm club. book club that we've generated together to try and encourage people to look into improving their vocabulary and, and also their knowledge on certain books. But people have said, you know, I've got no time to read and they've got things like Audible and other apps that you can get onto and download all that sort of stuff though so my point is is that you can record something so it can be a recorded message or you can just do a youtube clip where you can basically go through the procedures of what happens when you get down to a training center Mm -hmm. yeah good idea i do a lot of video stuff and put it on youtube as private links so that for students you can send not necessarily exactly what you're talking about for setup of a class Mm. but for specific skills and that kind of thing instead of first of all instead of having the time burden of explaining things over and over and over to people that's super helpful just having a a link that you have control of and you just go here watch this and people as you say i think are way more likely to watch something rather than read some material that you've sent them Mm. but also it it reduces the burden of you having to reproduce that every time when it's online there and you can just flick it out to people 
Yeah, and if you keep it short and interesting and to the point, it basically gives you that accountability that when people do arrive, they number one, they know who you are. Mm-hmm. They know what you look like. Because in the very early days, I'll take myself back to the days where I joined Australian Dog Training as a client. So when I first joined, I had to ring up. I mean, back in those days, you didn't have the internet. You had the yellow pages. Mm-hmm. So you would ring up. But I mean, I was I knew Boyd then and I, I knew who he was, but I didn't know who his team were that were training at the training center. So you ring someone up on the phone, you get mail sent to your house, which arrives two days later. You've got a preamble in there that you read through. And back then, I mean, I read everything about it because I wanted to know what it was all about. Mm -hmm. Usually back then you did read things because that was your social media, um, was, was snail mail. But these days people are less likely to read it. They'll look at it for five seconds and they'll throw it on the bench. And then they'll come down and claim they don't know what's going on, even though everything was there. But if you do do that, they know who you are. They've seen you on the video. They've actually got a little information and they know all the important stuff, like not taking their dogs over to other dogs. It can be whatever you put in there. Yeah, Everything that you and your staff, if you're a one-person show or you're a multi-team organisation, you can discuss it together or you can think it up alone and put down a script and say, well, these are the most important things and the preventable issues that I need to put together to make sure I don't have a problem and a nightmare when people come down to the training centre. And that makes it enjoyable from the get-go. It improves the stress level for you. It improves the stress level for the client. So when they actually arrive, they've got a clue, mm-hmm. which is the hardest thing to teach people when you're first wanting or when you're first starting to get to know them is how to have a clue what to do with their dogs. Mm-hmm. So you can include information on lead handling in that video. You can show people how to handle a lead, what to expect, the dangers of approaching other dogs. I mean, I know I've gone through this before, but these are still some of the paramount points that you really do want to get through to people. So when they do arrive, it's a far more enjoyable setting. Mm-hmm. On the topic of group classes, mm. facilities to do that, right? So not too many dog trainers have a facility like this, which yep. is a custom-built dog training place. A lot of people who are doing... You're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah like yeah. your kennels here. Mm. Uh, a lot yeah, of we're people, on five acres, so we're spoilt for choice. And plus we've got a large training shed in the back of yeah. the property. So. so, you know, 90% of dog trainers don't have access to that and run group classes out of what haphazard space they can get. Mm. Any advice for people on finding a place? And Well, in Australia, I can speak for it. And even in the US to a degree, what I do encourage people to do is speak to your local council because they mm-hmm. can be very helpful in it. They see it as a community-based organisation. So a lot of good councils who are dog-friendly councils, if you've got a good relationship with local council, local laws, or even if you haven't, go and establish one so you get to know who your animal management officer is, Mm -hmm. find out who they are, and find out if they've got any land available that you can have a pro rata rental system with. And I mean, in most cases, it's reasonably cheap Mm -hmm. because you're only there for, let's say, half a day on a Sunday. In some cases, local councils that we were working with when I was running my own show, they would see it as a security benefit mm-hmm. so they would also see it as okay well there's somebody down there during the day so you know the local hoodlum kids won't hang around with their bikes and spray paint graffito shit or, tag yeah, the, the graffito place. tag the, the place to smithereens yeah that's a good point so i think most councils have like community centers or mm. halls or you know that kind of thing that are available for exactly that kind of a purpose There's not only councils that you can rely on, you can also speak to public schools schools. um, and other places like scout halls or anything like that. So anything where there's land 
So if you see a football field or anything like that, they're usually local council. The one thing that they do have an issue with is leaving dog shit all over the place. Yep. So you pretty much doom your whole organisation if you you can't manage what happens when you're not there. Yeah. The local residents will come down with their dogs exercising them on the field and they'll crap all over the place. But what you do need to do is, even if it's not yours, go pick it up. Yeah, yeah. You know, as a community surface, what we used to do is we'd just go around with a poop scoop when we got there and pick up everything. Mm-hmm. So we would leave it in a clean fashion. And usually what I'd do is I'd take video of us doing that and send it into the guy that was working for the council at the time and just say, look, this isn't ours, but we're picking it up anyway. Mm-hmm. And he'd always send me a big thumbs up saying, mate, really appreciate it. You mm-hmm. know, like he'd even say things like, since you guys have been there, the grounds have been in better order. And that's feedback that you want. Mm-hmm. You really want to work with your local communities. If you're getting an option to get land and you're being able to rent it, you're being spoiled. So what you need to do is develop that that tidy relationship or that healthy relationship with people in the area. And that way, they want you there and they give you recommendations. So if you want to expand and you want to go elsewhere and you're finding that, you, you know, doors aren't open to you, having that recommendation by your local council animal animal management officer is very helpful for you. Yeah. I think another one sort of a little bit untapped is like dog industry facilities that are not training facilities like groomers and vets and that kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, your classes are likely to be outside of normal training hours. For anybody that's ever been involved in small business themselves, you know that like you're paying rent on your facility 24-7 and if it's only open 9 to 5, finding some sort of extra income, you're, you're paying rent on it overnight. You may as well have people in there using it. So if you can develop a relationship with someone like that. And again, usually the people I know that do that, they don't pay a lot to the people because there's no impact. It's a place that's set up for that. So there's very little impact or, or no impact on the business. And some money is better than no money. Well, the other place that you can also consider, which is on the rise, is daycare facilities because they're usually large warehouse organisations. And some of them actually have like quite a bit of space inside of them. Like if they've got a large area socialisation rather than all the segmented areas. And some of them, even with the segmented areas, they can open them up. Yeah. So they can open the fencing up and, and move them all around. Usually with daycare, it's a Monday to Friday business between the hours of seven to seven. Mm. And on the weekends, they're empty. So if they're not using it themselves, like if, they, if that's not a part of their business structure, they can rent it to you for a fee and you can set up your training facility there, which is often the case. Mm. I think Lauren Hoyle does that with Scruffies, doesn't she? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So that. yeah, Lauren does it. There's a number of people around Australia that I know of that have that option in mind, yeah. that they've developed a good relationship with a local business that has the available space to do so. And again, what I'm suggesting to you is make sure that you look after the place and that you tidy up after them and you don't have your clients coming in like a wrecking ball and causing problems for yourself because then you won't be welcome back there anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's some helpful advice on finding a facility. There you go. Yeah. All right. What else you got? What was the questions that Kura asked? He asked about having some... He says, suggestion for a talking point. I don't think there has been an episode yet on group classes, pros and cons, all the way from puppy to mature dogs, skills relevant to teach and some that are useless in a class setting, structure regarding tiers, some cases of good group classes. I know a lot, I learned a lot from Kat and Brent, how to keep it flowing, relaxed and enjoyable, etc. Okay, let's start at the start for something like what we used to do at Australian Dog Training, which was we had a first timers class. So the first timers class was 
structured for people that actually arrived on the first day. So rather than plant them straight into a class, what it was, it gave you a medium to be able to assess who they were and what their capabilities were. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of times where people just come down to classes and some people have dog knowledge. They've been to a training center before, so they're quite cluey. There's no point in putting that person into a basic obedience class if they're not a basic obedience person with Mm -hmm. a basic obedience dog. However, if it's a person who is completely clueless and they don't know what they're doing they should go from the ground up and work from there mm-hmm. so we've we've had people that have come down before we've said look your skills and your dog skills are at an intermediate level we believe that putting you into a basic class will be holding you back how do you feel about that would you like to go to intermediate obedience mm-hmm. and they kind of they say yeah that's great you know that that'd be great because i mean what you want to do is you want to make your client feel like they've got um enjoyment for coming down there bang for buck so some people might say, look, I've got knowledge, but the dog hasn't, so I'd rather stay in basic obedience and work up from there. But at least you give them the option when you're doing things like that. So so a first-timers class, the way that we structured it, I think that that gives you a great grounding to be able to look at who they are, what their capabilities are, and you can assess everybody in that class. Now, the person who's taking that class has to have a clue. And this is something... I think we've talked about this on the show in particular with puppy class. I'm going to go back and revisit that anyway. But mm-hmm. what I'm saying to people, because I just finished saying this to the latest NDTF group that's with me at this point in time, when you've got classes that deal with specific criteria, do not put somebody who is just a young, enthusiastic, happy person in the class, but they've got no experience and skills that are relevant to what you're trying to encourage your students to learn Mm -hmm. because there's been plenty of times where i've been down and i've had people that have asked me to come down and audit their training center for them you know they've said can you come down have a look and tell me what i'm doing right and doing wrong Mm -hmm. and i go down there and they've got the loveliest happiest bubbliest person taking the class who's got no clue what they're doing (laughs) and they're very enthusiastic but they put the wrong person in the class because people think that things like first timers class basic obedience or puppy class should be just somebody who's starting off in the career Mm. wrong Mm. absolutely wrong what you need in that facility is to make sure that you've got a very experienced person because you've got an education process from the ground up where you've got people who know nothing absolutely nothing generally when they come in there and you want a highly educated professional team member in that position. Mm. And I don't care if you're a not-for-profit club or you're a business, whatever that is, you should have one of the most experienced people there that they can give them access to the best information to start them off. The likelihood of people going forward from basic obedience is like people who go to gym or go to martial arts. You know, they usually grade a couple of belts or they, you know, they might do a year of working out in the gym and then after that they just start to filter off. So you'll start mm-hmm. seeing less and less interaction from that person as they go along. But if they go away not learning great material from the start from one of your best instructors, you're really going to find that that person is lost in the woods. Yep. Whereas if you've got someone fantastic who at least gives them the best head start that you possibly could, it speaks volumes for your training center. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think that puppy class especially, especially is fraught puppy class. with danger. Yep. Uh, some of the puppy classes that I have seen and uh, – especially having seen videos of some stuff online and stuff, it's just fucking carnage. And yep. and I actually have had many clients who have had their dog. When you start in Yeah, when you start investigating, like, where did this behavior come from? And it's mm. like, oh, well, you know, my 
Cavoodle was at puppy class at eight weeks old and there was a 22-week-old German Shepherd that just pounced on mine. And now we wonder why the dog's scared of big dogs, right? Yeah. Um, I agree 100%. I think that people who are teaching puppy class need to be the best of the teachers available. Yep. And the structure for that class has to be like tight. Absolutely. And I see so many people consider puppy class just socialization. No. And it, it – Well, it, it is, but it isn't. Yeah, it's it controlled is, it socialization. Yes, it's it controlled, can't just yes. be carnage. Yeah. And, and I – you know – I've I've been involved with group classes. I've been a student in group classes, and I've taught a couple for other people, and on behalf of other people. And I I'm not into it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not for me. Mm. Um, it is or it isn't, and yeah. that's one of those things. Uh, it, some people thrive in a group class environment. Yeah, I mean, look, I've done them for years. I did them with ADT. I did them with the Rottweiler Club. I've done it here as well. I mean, we run you know very small classes here on weekends, and I see value in them especially if it's if it's a way of getting people to come down and do something with their dogs. Other people would say, well, I see better value in doing one-on-one lessons with people. Yeah. However, that's an expense issue for some people. I mean, that's they're right. not in the economy where they can afford to do that. That's right. I'm not anti-group classes. I, I you am, just don't like them yourself. Yeah, for yep. me, it's not the right fit. And the style of training I do doesn't work. Yeah. Because what, what I dislike about being in group classes and for a person who trains a dog the way I do is that – I need to reinforce my dog at a rate for where my dog is at, not yep. where the group is at. That's right. And what I see in group classes, this is the first thing I don't like about it, is that the dogs are in the class pretty much the whole time. So you might have a 40-minute class and people have got their dog attached to them for 40 minutes. Yep. We're going to talk about that. That's a good point. Yeah. So for the type of dog and the type of training that I like to be involved in, mm. that's not okay. Yeah. Because during that 40 minutes, the dog is going to be doing things that we don't like of the dog and that's going to go unanswered. Mm. And the dog is going to do things that we do like very much and that too will go unanswered. Yep. And so there's all these learning opportunities that get get missed. Now, I understand that for most people, like if you're an average pet dog. You're uh, a one percenter. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And, and that's why I don't get involved in it. Yep. If you're an average pet dog person, it's perfect. It's yep. great. But I have, with most of my, my personal dogs, been gone to group classes at the Leichhardt Dog Training Club, which I've been asked to leave a few times. Um, <laughs> but also I go there because I like that it's an opportunity to proof my dog around other dogs to do obedience. But I don't like that the instructor of the class is the one that tells me when to reinforce my dog. Yep. Like that doesn't fly for me mm. because I know how long my dog can hold a stand out of motion and that might be different to what someone else can. Then there's no consequence. Like if we're leaving our dogs and that kind of stuff, like I, it's just too messy for me. Yep. I like my training to be very precise. I like to have a very clear plan on how it's going to go down and I don't train my dog for 40 minutes. Yeah. I do not train my dog for 40 minutes. Group classes are designed for Mr. and Mrs. Jones. That's right. Who are the 99% of the public. And, yeah. and they're not going to do PSA or IGP or Mondio or ANKC. They don't care about that. They see no value in it at all. Yeah. I mean, the concepts for them are probably important in what we're talking about, but they won't do it. Mm. You look at almost every gym company that's in the world. It doesn't matter where you go for and do a workout. They sell hundreds of memberships the percentage of people who they retain that come in and build up a, a great physique would be a very, very small percentage of people. Yeah. So people like the idea of getting fit and looking great and having big muscles and being ripped. But how many people actually maintain that? Yeah. They'll go in, they'll wake up in the morning with delayed Dons. onset muscle soreness and they'll they'll get up and go, oh, this is not for me. I don't want to feel like this when I'm going to work every day and 
hardly being able to move. So they'll they'll stop doing it. Mm. And it's the same thing, unfortunately, with with dog training schools and everything like that. Is that people will go along and they'll do a basic obedience course and they'll get to the end of their ten weeks or whatever it is, and they'll think to themselves, "Well, that'll do." You know, I don't want to wake up on early every Sunday morning and drag the dog down here. You and I find that important. You know, mm. we like doing things like that. We like going out and playing with our dogs and doing stuff and learning extreme behaviours and so forth. But to other people, it's not exciting. They're just doing enough to be able to say to people, yeah, my dog's trained. Yeah. And technically, it has a level of training, yeah. not a great one. But at least that medium exists for people to be able to go down there and, and to do things. Now, when you talked about the time frame of people in classes for 45 minutes – I agree, that's a long time for a dog to be stuck in a class. So getting back to part of Kerr's points that he was making before and talking about economy of flow, if you're in a class for 45 minutes and you're working for 45 minutes, you've lost your dog. That is not a pleasant environment for the dog to be in. In fact, that's what we call an aversive environment. There's no enjoyment for a dog that's being ground out for 45 minutes. What we usually encourage people to do is 45 minutes consisting of a lot of breaks, mm. a lot of free times. So we might do a five-minute exercise with a lot of freedom in between. Okay, so we'll say to people, okay, when your dog's doing the exercise, what I want you to do is have your own autonomy that when you see the dog doing well, release your dog. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what we encourage people then to do is also have control over their dogs at the same time. So we say to people as we start going along, you're going to see dogs randomly releasing. You need to keep control of your dog. So you need to keep your dog focused on you. So you need to select an appropriate motivator that keeps your dog enthralled with what you're doing rather than what's going on externally. So we try and keep the focus internally rather than teaching the dog look for outside competing motivators. And if it does, we, we've got to teach the client on how to work hard to get the dog back. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very, very important message, especially for people in your basic classes, because a lot of the problems that society is facing these days is dogs that go down the dog parks and can't recall or can't pay any attention because yeah. they're constantly distracted by what other dogs are doing. Yeah. Do yeah. I, have I mentioned that I hate dog parks? <laughs> Once or twice. Have I mentioned <laughs> that I love dog parks? <laughs> Once or twice. <laughs> no, I agree. And that's why I sort of struggle with it because I like my reinforcers to remain reinforcing. Mm. And you can't train a dog with food and have him take the, the, the food in the way that I would want a dog to take the food for 40 minutes. Yep. That, that's impossible. And, and you get to the point of satiation too, where you're giving the dog too much food. Yeah, that's right. And, you know? and if you're going to then space out the dogs, even if it's all the food he's going to eat for the day, mm. uh, to space that out over 40 minutes, the uh, values that you're delivering each time are going to be so low that you're not reinforcing effectively. Yep. If you were to give your value of your reinforcer a, a number out of 10, if you're going to train a dog with food for 40 minutes, you're delivering a 0.5 every time you, you mark and mm. here, here you go. And so then you have the competing motivator. My dog wants to go play with that other dog. Well, that's a five out of 10 to him. And I, because I have to continue to train for 40 minutes, when he does what I say, I have to underwhelm my dog and give him one kibble yep. because I need my other 90 kibbles for the remainder of the time. Mm. Um, so it, for me, it, it just doesn't mesh. And I, I get it. I totally get that. that I, I don't train with... Like, normal people yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm training with people that are trying to get the most out of their dogs but even when are um, they well they're trying they? to they're, they're trying to <laughs> doesn't mean they are but that's why people are coming to me for that yeah. and I, I I love doing that that's how much prefer and but mm. we're 
I just find it really stressful when training is haphazard, when it's like, okay, we're going to get the dogs out and now we're going to talk about what we're going to do. It's like, no, mm. we're going to talk about what we're going to do. We're going to set it all up so it goes the way that we want and then we're going to get the dog out and we're going to make sure our dog finds value in doing what we want him to do and then we're going to put him away successfully. Okay, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. There has been discussion around that very point because people have said to me before, would you have a class where there are no dogs coming down, where mm-hmm. the handlers just come down yep. and they just do planning and procedural work without the dog there? Yep. And I said, I think that's absolutely a fantastic idea. Yep. I said, if you can encourage people to come down without the kids, without the dogs, you know, the husband and wife team, the person, and if the kids are not running around, they're paying attention. Yes, bring them down. Yep. You know, I mean, if you've got toddlers who are running around, the parents are distracted by them and running around trying to get them under control don't have them at at the facility yeah but if you've got older children that are sitting there and they want to be part of the training system yeah the family should come down they should listen and then you can do walkthroughs with them you can tell them what it's going to look like how it's going to benefit them which is the end message that you really want to get through to them how this is going to benefit you by having a controllable dog in your household yeah how it's going to save you time how it's going to save you money how it's going to save you from tears and how it's possibly and most likely going to save the dog's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's funny. uh, Earlier you mentioned Lauren uh, working out of uh, Scruffies. She does exactly that. Mm -hmm. And she's changed to that system. I I don't know whether she does it for puppy classes, but I know for her like sort of intermediate sort of class, Mm -hmm. she has that for sure where there's – it's like she added an extra week to a four-week program. It's now a five-week program. And the the first is just pure theory and you don't bring your dogs and we sit there because the problem is, especially with puppy classes, what I found when I was teaching it, is you got six – fucking puppies in a room who's listening to you, you no they're, you, they're trying to get the puppies under control it's like again, well they're just like looking at cute toddlers. puppies they're yeah. looking at cute puppies everybody's like um, oh. yeah that's right and that's the normal human that's oh, why look at my puppy mauling the other puppy yeah well that's how puppies survive <laughs> they're so annoying that the only reason we, we keep them around is because they're so cute so people people we, we just uh, lost all the puppy people <laughs> people are enthralled by six puppies running around and, yep. and one of them starts barking and everybody's watching him and and, and reinforcing that barking by, by umming and ahhing and looking at him and just totally doing the wrong thing. And you, as the person out the front who actually knows what they're doing, mm. is saying like, don't look at him. Don't do that. Like, people just, fuck off, idiot. I don't want to play with this puppy. It's what I'm here to do. <laughs> and that's why I brought three of my friends who don't have a dog. They're here just here to play with puppies, you know? like And that's what I found happen over and over and over. Mm. And so having that theory week, I think, is an awesome idea. And I know that since Lauren implemented it, I mean, it's a case study of one, but I know she's seen awesome results from it. I know that like it means that it just like what you're saying, sending out a video or whatever prior, but she's got a whole lesson and it means that from the first lesson when the dogs are there, we hit the ground running. Yep. They're like, okay, now- You have prior knowledge. Yeah, and mm. I'm here now to supervise you implementing the skills that I taught you last week rather than- Here's a little skill. Try and implement that. Good luck, Mm -hmm. right? Like having that is is a great system. I know it's working well for her. Well, I was very fortunate back in the day that I had a great mentor, a lady named Kylie Bright, who Mm -hmm. is a fantastic friend of mine. And she was my puppy instructor. I'm talking near 30 years ago Mm -hmm. and when Harley was a baby. And I still consider her an absolutely fantastic and incredible wealth of information in regards to puppy management, handling and raising. Because she was very captivating from the start. She made it very, I mean, for information that was around at the time was known nowhere near the source of information that's around now. And it just goes to show you what a great puppy trainer she was and mm-hmm. still is. 
because she was very, very captivating. She kept the class enthralling. She kept everyone motivated and she developed a very, very good confidence system for puppies and handlers. Mm -hmm. Instead of just having puppies mob each other and running around the centre, we were working on obstacles and navigation and different surfaces and textures. Yeah, Um, that's what you need. That's what you need. Because you look at people doing puppy class and it's like, okay, we're going to Puppies running around on a floor inside a vet clinic. That, or it's then people like, okay, this is us teaching your dog how to sit, to drop, to roll over. It's like, these are eight-week-old fucking puppies. How about we focus on the important stuff of yep. building a strong Critical dog. period socialization. Yeah. Yep. And that's and, – and like I say, in the class, there's not a lot you can do because you have the environment that you have. That's mm. it. But getting that message across to people of like, hey, you need to get these dogs out. You need to be doing this. Expose them to this. The other thing is, you know, explaining to people that you need to stop reinforcing everything so heavily. Like what I see – when people who misunderstand us and others, when we talk about getting a puppy out and giving it positive experiences in the world, then they're out there just constantly smashing their dog full of food while it's out. Yep. And it's like, no, let him just it's experience not taking it. it in. Yeah. Yeah. Let him experience this. If so, like have that food with you and have yep. your charge marker so that if something goes wrong, you can recover the dog or, you know, you can show that if there, if he is worried about something, you can show, Hey, don't be worried about that. That brings good things. But what I see all the time is people just out and the dogs don't even, they're, they're not, they, they're not taking it in. They don't see that it's actually yeah. happening. They, they're not getting the visual and auditorial stimuli of what's yeah. around them. And mm. you've got a capital. I, I mean, we're off the top of your group classes, but we're not. We're not actually because this is very important. Yeah, and this I, is this is why I'm so super critical of the person who's in that role because I was very fortunate to have a great mentor, and I've seen the capacity of of brilliant people in that role, people who do take it uh, very seriously and do do such an extraordinary job of it. And I've also seen the counter as you have, where I've seen people who are just diabolical. And I mean, they don't mean to be, but they've just never been mentored properly. They've yeah. never been educated properly. And they're suffering the Dunning-Kruger effect of thinking that they're brilliant because they don't know anything. Mm. Jerry said something. I've heard him say it a few times. I'm definitely stealing Jerry it. Bradshaw, Jerry my Bradshaw, my new best friend. Your, your close personal <laughs> best friend. Um, uh, he said something. I've heard him say it a few times and I'm stealing it and I'm going to credit him this one time yeah. and after that it's mine. Okay. Is you've got to capitalize on the ignorance of the puppies. Mm. And so they don't know things are fearful and they don't have – like a, a well-bred dog anyway yep. should have no reason to think that a truck driving down the street is of concern to him. Mm. When he's eight weeks old, he shouldn't give two shits about that. In fact, it might even just kick him into a prey because it moves fast. Yep. So there's no need for you then to be like, oh, that's something that an adult dog might be scared of later. Here's some food to recover you from that. Just let him experience it. Capitalize on his ignorance and let him have experiences with it. And if it goes bad, then you need to address and recover it. Can but I add in general, to that? just let him play with it. Yeah, I need to add something to that. When you, when you do let the dog experience it, Obviously, and clearly you're not saying just thrust him right to the corner of the road and make him deal with it. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it's, I mean, we have to explain things carefully yeah, here because yeah. if people hear that, they'll go, oh, okay, Pat just said throw him to the side of the road and let him hear the full brunt of the truck rattling by. Yeah. Exposure should be gradual exposure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's always incremental and that's something that is always encouraged in puppy schools and everything like that is, yes, let them take it in, but it's always gradual and incremental and then build them up to it. Yeah. Like it's the same thing if we were doing rattling can curtains, we wouldn't just make the pup sit there and throw the can curtain on top of the puppies. We'd do it at a distance, okay, a little rattle, throw some food in there, let the puppy run over and find the food and scourge around it. I mean, that's how what I've been doing with Sharky is teaching her to run over and you know, just jump and dive into it. So now she doesn't care about it at all. So when I do become extreme with it and start moving it, no cares, no fucks given. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, back to classes. Back to classes. 
Do you guys have testing in your classes? Yes. Yeah, and, we did. And yep. what if someone fails the test? They can't move to the next level. Right. So there's a criteria, and I always, always believe that there should be a criteria, that there is um, – and we had a listed criteria of what they had to do at the end of each class to be considered to be able to move up. And what I do see these days, and there's a fair amount of disdain about this because I see a lot of people that are just getting a free level up. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going into a, a next class. And I paid my money. Yeah, I paid I, my money. I, I, I the course. I get to pass the course. And this is like – Every child gets a ribbon, you know, and I mean, I know some people argue, well, that's that's inclusive and they should be able to do that. But I mean, the problem is, is now you don't have to work for anything. It's, mm. it's just the expectation that I've paid my money, I get to move to the next level. No, I don't think that's a good idea. I think there should be an established criteria. I think you should have to work hard on that criteria to be able to pass it. If you don't pass it, you don't get to go up. Mm-hmm. And I know that some people might find that a little bit demoralizing, but what's the benefit of having somebody in the next class who can't do the criteria of that class? Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're starting to move from totally on lead to starting to move to an off lead, combined off lead exercises, and you've got dogs in the class who clearly can't do it, mm-hmm. then it becomes very haphazard about what that dog's doing in the class. And where's it going to go from there? You're only falling further and further and further behind. So if you're one of the people listening to this and you've got one of those type of dogs, don't see that as a burden. Look at it as an opportunity to think, well, I need longer. And I and I mean, one of the great things I used to see was I'd say to people, I think you're ready to move. And they'd say, the dog is, but I'm not. Okay. Or vice versa. They'd say, you know, I, I probably am. I know the knowledge, but the dog's not there yet. I'd like to stay here a little bit longer. Is that a problem? I'd say, no, not at all. I encourage you and applaud your effort for wanting to stay in the class. Mm-hmm. No problem. I think that's benefit. It's the same thing if you had a child in school who just wasn't capable of going up to the next level. I know that they want to go up there and they see that as an incredible burden to have to stay back a year, but why put them in a class when they've been struggling in the year that they're in only to find that they're going to struggle even more in the next year and find that super aversive mm-hmm. and then and then suffer the consequences of thinking that they're dumb and they can't learn. Yep. Why not keep them back and let them learn, okay, let's let's go through this again, okay? But let's find out the root cause of the problem as well so we can find out why we're not progressing. And sometimes I'd say to people, why aren't you progressing? You know, like what's the trouble? And most cases people would say, I'm just not practicing enough at home. Yeah, so the truth right. would surface, which was good. And then we'd say, okay, well, unless you do that little bit of back-end work, we're not going to get you up. So mm-hmm. what we wanted, we always wanted to keep the flow going. We always wanted to keep it exciting and enthralling for people that they actually did like their classes and they were doing well. And one thing I did find about the early days of ADT, which I, I'm not seeing it around much anymore, and if, if you have a different viewpoint on this, I'd love to hear about it in the discussion group, but we used to have enormous advanced obedience classes. Mm-hmm really, really big advanced obedience classes where there are a lot of people in there. Define advanced obedience. Advanced obedience as part of the class system was when you were getting your dog to a complete off-lead status. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you would be able to remove your lead off the dog and be able to have the dog under stimulus control. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the dog could be around other dogs. It could be doing exercises like healing off-lead, drops amongst the group off-lead, having people kicking footballs around. So we'd play football while the dogs were in a drop stay in the centre. So we'd be doing hand passes and kicks. We'd be rolling fit balls over the top of the dogs. We'd be throwing food around. We'd be having flirt poles that we'd throw in the middle of the group and pull out, and the dogs had to ignore everything. So they had to have that level of stimulus control that whenever whenever and whatever was presented, the dog would ignore it and stay in position. Mm-hmm. So 
if a dog was at that level, they were considered capable to come into advanced obedience. Okay. Well, that was part of the advanced obedience criteria. In order to pass advanced obedience, as we were talking before, you actually had to have an extreme measure to be able to pass it. Like you couldn't just get through it with mm-hmm. the minimal effort. Like, So what we used to do is if you were able to complete the class, you actually had to pass a list of probably about 30 different criteria to be able to get through it. So it wasn't just something you just walked over and, and got at the end of 20 weeks or something like that. Like there were generally people that were in the class for six months before they actually attempted to go for the advanced obedience pass. Right. And everyone in the centre would clap and cheer for the people. They'd get proper recognition and proper certification for actually passing through it. Mm-hmm. These days when I watch people doing it, I feel a little bit let down for them because it's basically you just got to the end you know, here's your pass rate and you, you're through. Mm-hmm. There's no real criteria to do it. It's just time ran out, you got through. So on the topic of group classes then, how would you suggest people break classes down? So there's puppy class and that's eight to 16 weeks or whatever? Yeah, puppy class, I well, let me just go through the way that we did it back then. I think puppy class, certainly a first-time class, a basic class, an intermediate class, and an advanced class. Okay. Now, you can have variations on that. And one thing that we did do to make it a little bit more captivating for people who did pass advanced obedience and had nothing left to do at the end of it, well, not nothing left to do, but you know they'd already gone through the, the complete cycle, was we had uh, a team called Team Extreme. Mm-hmm. So with Team Extreme... Team Extreme. Team Extreme. <laughs> so Team Extreme was our demo team. <laughs> Let me guess who named Team Extreme. Boyd. <laughs> Yeah. So we had Team Extreme and Team Extreme was for people who had passed advanced obedience, but they could learn a range of complex skills. Okay. So a lot of the criteria of what we're teaching on the NDTF course now came from Team Extreme. So we started to develop it on the field at the time and see what was fun and see what the dogs were practically capable of doing it. And then it was migrated across and it was sort of like a part of NDTF and a part of ADT coming together at the time where we would crisscross information across there to see what people actually liked doing, what a lot of dogs were um, readily capable of doing. So we could make it part of the student criteria in in the pass rate of NDTF as well. Mm -hmm. So it was good grounds for each other. It was great testing grounds to find out what could be done. And then we'd have, you know, like I've got photos of people with their dogs pushing prams with other dogs in it come out on stage and have all the dogs do a bow and when they left they'd all do a bow off the stage so we'd have like i think we had about anywhere up to a dozen dogs at the time so a few times we did openings for pet centers and so forth we'd go out there and they'd get us to come down dr harry would be there we'd be there mm-hmm. it was great some of the people got gainful employment from it so they actually got to do tv work with their dogs mm-hmm. instructors were doing it as well they you know the people who broke away from adt got into a lot of uh, trick and television style of training from that sort of right. style of training. So, mate, it, it was good. It was, you know, and that's what I try and encourage people to do as well. Keep it interesting, keep it knowledgeable, keep it fascinating, keep it stimulating. If you can do that for people, then you get a good flow. But you kind of develop a family atmosphere down there as well. Mm-hmm. Like you, you really get to know these people and you get to be a part of their life as well as they do in, in part of your life. So I would add that because of places like Australian Drug Training and even to a lesser degree but still inclusive, the Rottweiler Club when I was involved in there, some of 
some of the people who are still my great friends today are from those centers, Mm -hmm. from their old clients or trainers or former trainers. They're still a part of my circle of friends and people that are very dear to me that I've met them through those groups. So, So let's talk business models. So I know most people would sort of do like a four-week class or something like that, right? Whatever, how many weeks it is, and that's it. Like you're done at the end of that, no matter – you've paid your money. Yep. No matter the standard of your dog at Mm -hmm. the end, like this is it, the course is over. Yep. And then other people have like a sort of a, I guess, a yearly fee or a membership fee. I guess that's what you guys had with ADT. Um, what we did, just to, so to, to cut in on that, what we did was you'd, you'd pay a membership fee and then after you passed, you'd become a member for life. Right. So we would honour the member for life thing. So it was the same sort of thing as a gym. You could pay and you'd come as much as you wanted to. Yeah. So I guess Canine Company is, is something similar to that now, right? Brand yeah, I believe Cat so. Is where you, yep. they... It's not like this is your six weeks and then you're out on your ass at the end of the six weeks. Mm. And, and they have a real community feel to it, right? Like at all of their classes, it's a it's a bunch of people all training their dogs together. Mm. And I think that, as you're saying, for group classes, it, it, even though I'm not involved in that, I look at theirs and I, I see videos of theirs and I would go, oh, okay, like that looks like something I could get in, I could get in on. I can support that yeah. because it's a group of people working towards training their dogs better and they have – good oversight and mentorship from the professional trainers in the group. Who continually upgrade their knowledge and skills all the time. Yeah. And they encourage all their trainers to do so as well. So, I mean, you know, one of the things we've been on the show, we've been very critical about trainers who spout that they've got this knowledge and that they're oracles in the industry and so forth, and yet we never see them at any events. We never see Mm. them upgrading their skills. Well, that can't be said about people like, Cat and Brent, mm. you know, you regularly see them and their team. You know, like I mean, how many times do you see Wysum and yeah, yeah, um, Sarah? I mean, Sarah Wysum. You see her at uh, at events and so forth. Same thing with Scott McGuinness and his crew, mm-hmm. and people like them and Trish Harris. And there's many people. And I mean, these are only people I'm talking about that I know of that are actually there. You know, Lauren Hoyles at, at these things as well. You know, I mean, people are actually actively going out there, upgrading their skills and knowledge. And if they're working as part of a community team in group obedience, they're upskilling themselves and their team, their entire team, so they can give their members all the best benefits that they're learning at the time. Yeah. And as you said, you know, when you know that, when you have confidence in people that they're actually doing that and they're developing those systems, well, how could you not want to be a part of that team? And I think that's the great thing about being in the community that we're a larger part of is that we're actually seeing people getting better and better and passing better information onto a people. They're not just doing what we learned 30 years ago because mm. what we learned 30 years ago was state of the art 30 years ago. Mm. Now it's not, you know, now in some ways it, there's some fantastic foundations that we've learned from that, but some of it's redundant. Yeah. That's a trap that I think a lot of, well, certainly I could name a few people who have run you know, classes and have a big name behind them, but in reality, and have their demo dog that goes to the classes, and in reality, their nine-year-old dog can hold a stay for the duration of the class, yep. comes over when it's recalled, and, and, and that's about it. Yep. And then because you're constantly exposing yourself, this is a dangerous pitfall for any professionals to constantly expose yourself to people who know next to nothing, mm. and then you knowing one thing is infinitely better than their nothing. And you can, can I, I, well, we see it all the time, people who have convinced themselves that they're very good dog trainers when the reality is that they're, they're just a guy with a dog that can hold it down and they're giving terrible advice or, sorry, not terrible, but... Redundant. Outdated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's pretty common. Yeah, it's too common. 
And it really is a blight on the industry because you're going away and encouraging and influencing a flock of people to believe that that's the best of the information that's out there. Mm. And then they become encapsulated to support you and then they'll go away and tell other people that to come down and work underneath said person, mm-hmm. which is just producing more and more problematic dogs. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're working with people who are up to date on the most cutting edge information, it's going to make an incredible difference to the dogs that we're producing in the community. Mm-hmm. This is the thing is that group classes are a conduit to most of the population. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I've been thinking while we're talking about you saying comparing it to a gym membership, like the thing as well, what, you know, I've got friends that own gyms and what they've told me many times is that all the people who get excited on 1st of January and join a gym and then go like four times in a year, they're actually really important because they subsidize the memberships of the people that are there twice a day. Yep. Like if you had it, if, if everybody, you know, I've got a friend that owned a gym and he told me if every, if all my members turned up, I'd be fucked. He's yep. like, there's no way my gym can actually support the capacity of that. We rely on those people that just buy a membership and never come again. And I think it's the same probably with maybe those group classes where as a business, if even if you aren't a big business, you're just sort of a hobbyist dog trainer, you run a class on the weekend or whatever, you're crowdsourcing a fee. And if you can reach, if you can give everybody some good information, but give one person in that class who can't afford a private lesson with you some really good information, that's that's probably still a pretty good outcome, right? It's a great outcome. Everybody goes forward a little bit. And that guy who, you know, has his first dog and is an apprentice electrician and is earning $170 a week and can't afford private lessons, but is there keen as shit. Yep. If he can group source that information by paying his $20 instead of his 100 then that's a pretty good outcome. There's a saying that says a little information could be a dangerous thing. Mm. Well, no information can be even worse. Mm. So I think sometimes that as long as you're going to a good provider and somebody who really does have their wits about them, then by all means, at least you're getting something, at least you're starting in the right direction. And sometimes that's just enough to tip the scale in the favour that that person will continue on that they'll meet friends down there, that they'll develop a relationship, that they'll develop a sense of community. And for, you know, go back to Kerr's original question, that's one of the things I think that you should all be working on when you're developing these training platforms. And I'll use Cat and Brent as an example because they very much are about the greater community. Mm -hmm. Like they really do have a lovely feel when you go down there and you watch what they're doing and how they're uh, their trainers are interacting and how much they actually give back to the community. I mean, they have people that just adore them because of it. Well, on them, well, here's a plug. J-Jack coming to Australia very soon. Get mm. your tickets for GRC seminars. Yep. But last year when he was here, you know, there were a bunch of dog trainers whose dog didn't do so well at the SR test. Yep. And I think it was six or nine or something like that of Brent and Kat's clients who are not dog trainers they're just people who come to their classes on the weekend pass that sr test yeah so that you know if you're going to talk about does training work like that's a testament to what they're without having a lot of time to prepare for it too yeah yeah, so that was just off the bat i mean i think they had probably what a week or two uh uh, well from when they i mean no one really knew because jay was here so it was like it was their pilot yeah Yeah. so it was 10 minutes because here's the walkthrough of what you got to do and now go out and do it Mm. And it proves that those skill, those dogs were well-prepared from their group classes. Those dogs were well-prepared in social responsibility. Yeah. Basic obedience and can handle themselves around people and other dogs. Mm. But even if you look at their social media platforms as well, when you're, you know, like they recognize people a lot, like mm. they really 
go out of their way to pick people out who are doing well and applaud their efforts and show it to everybody else as well. So they inspire people to try and be better and, you know, be a better person than, the, than what you were yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a lovely message when I when I see people doing it well. You know, like they've taken what they learned and what we learned all together and made it their own and put their own spin on it to make it even better than what we had in the early days. Mm. So, I mean, look, we had a great community platform with what we had. We had a very, very – we were the largest professional dog obedience centre in Australia, like for a long, long time. And probably even by today's standards, we had eight centres. We had between 50 and 70 employees working for us. We had thousands of clients coming down all the time. So, I mean, it was – an Australian dog training was an enormous mm. – um, enormous event when it was running enormous business and you know i was very proud to be a part of that i was very proud of the community that we worked with and i mean and still being great friends with a lot of people in that industry today i mean you know there's so many people that i I met during that time people like michelle dench brent cat geez there's just i could rattle off so many names kylie bright there was an extraordinary amount of people but the one thing that i did like about it which i would encourage people to do even to this day is that we used to have regular meetings with each other where we would workshop ideas and strategies around things all the time. And that was largely influenced and led by Boyd, but other people also got in on that and put their own spin on it as well. So we'd have video nights where we'd be watching training concepts, you know, like back there in the day we'd have Lieberg videos on VHS tapes and everything like Mm. that where we'd all sit around have a beer and pizza night where we'd watch concepts in training because that's all we had access to but then we'd sit around there and talk about how do we do it better what can we possibly do to improve standards and make it a better system for everybody or make it a better club or make it that better atmosphere and I think if you're doing that in this day and age that's what you should be looking for as as well in your own system is getting your group together and and listening to everybody even paying a lot of attention to the feedback that your clients are giving you mm-hmm. ask for it put out surveys for it you know i mean i know a lot of people aren't really big on surveys and they don't really they're not really helpful but if people are giving you information take it on board yeah mm. all right hey we got to wrap it up we're out of time we are It'd be good to get someone on the show that has a really good group class set up and, and they maybe want to talk through how that would go. So if you're that person, get in contact with us. If you think, oh, I've got the group class, don't worry. I I know how to do it. Yeah, I've, why not? I've got the system. These two idiots don't know anything. I'm going to school them about, <laughs> about group classes. Get in touch because it'd be interesting to have someone that's doing it currently and, and thinks they're doing it well to talk to. Um, so that could be fun. Yeah, Glenn's looking at me dubiously, like, hmm. oh, I'm always, I'm, <laughs> I'm always interested. I mean, one of the great things about being in a position to improve your learning is listening to what other people are doing. Yeah, if you don't actively go out there fishing for it, you'll never learn. Yeah, that's right. All right, hey, that's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. Hey, let us know what you think about the new sound. Is it better or worse? Yeah, um, the new board. No way it can be worse. No way. <laughs> And once again, before we do... If you think it's worth, don't tell us or Glenn will go into a fit. (laughs) Once again, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the people in Patreon who supported us purchasing this equipment. Yeah. As I said, it is because of you. Uh, We were able to afford this. I've switched all the bills over to the Patreon account now, so um, Mm -hmm. it's not coming out of our pockets anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So Patreon guys, you're actually helping support... You are supporting the show. It's because of you that we're able to have advancements like this and we'll be able to do things that we thought there's no way we'd be able to afford it. Now we can. Thank you very much. Honestly, from the heart, it's so much appreciated. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, yeah. All right. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it. Music. <laughs>